If you'll take your Bible with me today and you'll look to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're beginning a new series of messages that'll last through the next several weeks, uh, six or eight weeks, talking about the gospel. Uh, we're going to have a 2020 focus. Uh, we're going to bring into focus uh, the most important message there is, uh, the message of the gospel. And we're going to begin today with what is the gospel and making sure that we rightfully define and we rightfully understand what is this message, the message of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether, I was, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that as we focus on what is the central message of the New Testament church and of the New Testament Christian, as we get a 2020 focus, focus on this message. I pray, Lord, that you'll bring it to clarity in our own hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be able to declare it with clarity to others around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel. For apart from the gospel, we were without hope. For apart from the gospel, we were lost in our sins. Thank you for coming for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know if it's true for you, but it is sometimes for me that I get confused on occasion. Uh, if you sit down with your computer and you Google something, you come up with hundreds sometimes, maybe thousands of hits in that Google search, and then you start looking at some of them and you realize that they disagree with each other on some very basic facts. And, and then you walk away from that and you say, well, now who's right? Is this one right or is that one right? And they're confusing at times, aren't they? For instance, uh, if you Google something related to your health, I mean, obviously everything that's on the internet about your health is true, right? <laughs> so if you Google whatever your symptoms may be, it's going to be clear that you actually have this illness or this disease and you should be able to diagnose it for yourself and even find treatment for yourself, right? Yeah, right. The reality is that if you do that, you're probably not going to be in very good health and you're going to end up pretty confused. I've Googled things at times that I was having, I was experiencing at that moment, and I had things far worse than I actually had. Do you do that? You know, I Google it and I find out 
I'm a lot more sick than I thought I was. <laughs> or, or I Google the medication that they tell me to take, and, and I read all of the different uh, effects of the medication. And then I'm questioning my mind, maybe I just prefer to be sick. <laughs> maybe I be, you know, prefer to be sick this way than with, with all of those, those, those uh, other effects. The point is, is that we can get confused pretty easily. It, it was interesting, I saw a little article about a, a traffic sign at an intersection at two major roads in Chicago, Illinois. You talk about confusing, this is what the traffic sign said. To make a left turn, make two right turns. That's what the sign said. To make a left turn, make two right turns. Now, do you understand that? Let's Google that one and see what it tells us to do. I mean, to make a left turn, you got to make two right turns. I, I don't understand those kind of things, and they're things that confuse us sometimes. But may I tell you that when it comes to the gospel, we must not, we cannot be confused. Our eternal destiny and the destiny of those around us turns on a right understanding of the gospel. But sadly, in the day in which we live with so much biblical illiteracy, a lot of people that sit in our churches Sunday after Sunday cannot articulate clearly what is the gospel. It reminds me of a man who asked a lady one day, he, he said, what do you believe? And the lady responded, well, I believe what my church teaches. And the man said, well, what does your teach, church teach? And she responded, oh, they teach what I believe. <laughs> so he asked her, he said, well, what do you and your church believe? And she said, oh, we believe alike. That's where a lot of us are. You're just now getting it, aren't you? That's where a lot of us are. We don't really know what we believe on a lot of issues. But may I tell you that the gospel is the cornerstone of all that we do. If the gospel is not right, it is not proclaimed properly, it is not believed properly, then everything else oriented to that gospel will be wrong as well. The gospel is the foundation. And if the foundation is unstable, everything that is built on it is unstable. And so we have to be able to articulate the gospel in a way that is clear, that is succinct, that is to the point, and that is biblical. As a matter of fact, that's what the Apostle Paul says that he does here. If you notice in chapter 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, that's to the Corinthians, I delivered to you first of all. Now that's not just priority in chronology. In other words, I didn't just come to you and the very first thing I said to you was what follows. He's talking about it's, uh, it's first in priority. This is the most important message that I have to deliver. This is the foundation. This is the cornerstone. And if you don't get it right, the result is that you're going to have a lot of confusion. And there are a lot of people confused about the gospel. My concern today is that there are many people who are sitting in our churches, even churches like ours, who are confused about the gospel and who think they're going to heaven, but they're actually going to an eternal hell. Because they don't know the gospel. They don't know what the gospel says. They don't know what the gospel means. They don't understand the gospel. So let's just begin with a simple definition of the word gospel. The, the word gospel literally means good news. Isn't that great? Aren't you grateful that the New Testament tells us about good news? 
Unfortunately, if you turn on your news too often these days, what you get is bad news. It seems like all the time it's bad news, 24-7 cable news, bad news, all the time. But you know, when you come to church or when you're out talking about the gospel, what you are delivering is good news. That word gospel, that word gospel is found 77 times in the New Testament in the noun form, euangelion. In the verb form, euangelizo, it's found 55 more times. And you add all of those numbers together, you don't need to know Greek, that's not important. I'm just telling you, it's found there a lot. It's found there a lot. You know, sometimes when you find this word gospel, you find it with modifiers. For instance, you'll find it where it says the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is he telling us? If it's good news of Jesus Christ, what is he telling us? He's telling us that this good news of salvation comes through the person and the work of Jesus. Or you'll find a phrase like this, the gospel of the grace of God. There's the modifier, the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of the grace of God. What's the modifier telling us? It's telling us that there's an emphasis here on the aspect of this good news that it's apart from all meritorious works. This gospel can't be received by the things that you do. It's all of grace. There's another little phrase. It's called the gospel of peace. You find that as you're reading through the New Testament, the gospel of peace. What what does that little modifier tell us about the gospel? It's telling us that the good news that we're talking about brings peace in all of its aspects through the saving work of the Lord Jesus. Or, for instance, one other, the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, in the early part of his ministry, preached, and the apostles preached the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what is that modifier telling us? That's something important. It was good news about the kingdom. And at least initially, when Jesus came, he came offering to the nation of Israel the kingdom, his, his reign on earth. But to have the kingdom, what did they have to do? They had to receive the king. And they didn't receive the king. They rejected the king. But the modifier tells you something about the gospel. So that when you think about good news and you think about these modifiers, we need to come to a working definition. And that working definition is on the screens for you to follow along. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again so that we might become the children of God through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, here's what I encourage you to do. Please write that definition down. That's a working definition. We can nuance some of these words. We can expand on some of these thoughts and these concepts, and we're going to do a little of that here in a moment. But at at its very core, that is the gospel. The gospel is not about some kind of moralism. It's not about some kind of ceremonialism. It's not about some kind of ritual. The gospel is about this message, this good news that Christ has died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again so that we might be the children of God through faith alone in Christ alone. That, my friends, is the gospel. And we have to be clear about it. We have to make sure we understand it. We have to make sure that we're enunciating exactly what is the gospel. And so we're going to be talking about that over these coming weeks as you think about the gospel, and specifically here out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's three statements I want you to write down and, and remember about the gospel. The first is this. The gospel acknowledges 
mankind's sinful condition. The gospel acknowledges mankind's sinful condition. I want to remind you that you don't have a gospel, the good news, if you don't understand what is the bad news. So look back here to chapter 15 and notice what it says in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, not just, uh, not just first in chronology, but first in priority, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now, I know it's not popular in the day in which we live to talk about people being sinners. As a matter of fact, you'll hear a lot of people talking about, you know, we're really good people. At the core of our being, we're really good people. And what we just have to do is get out of the way and let the little light that's in all of us shine through. But do you realize that that's the opposite of what the Bible says about every one of us who comes into this world? The Bible says about every one of us that we are sinners, and we are sinners to the very core of our being because Jesus had to come to die for our sins. Let me ask you a question. Why is there evil in our world? Why was there a shooting of some seven or eight or nine people outside of a hookah bar downtown? Why are there children today who are basically raising themselves? They have parents that are either stoned or uh, they're drugged up and they can't pay any attention to their, to their children. Why is it there are people in this world that are dying of hunger when there is enough food being grown that if it was spread out and passed out that everybody could have sufficient to be able to eat? Why is it there's murders and you know, robbings and killings? And why is it there's hatred and bitterness? Why is it that we say mean things and hateful things and bitter things toward other people and are said toward us? Why is it there's that kind of evil? Why is it when you turn on your television set, you're inviting into your, uh, you're inviting into your living room, Hollywood? I mean, Hollywood. Why is it? Why is it that we have evil in this world? Let me ask you a more important question. Not only why is there evil in this world, why is there evil in you? Why is there evil in you? You say, but pastor, I'm really not as bad as, as you think I am, or as the Bible describes me as being. I'm not really that bad of a person. And yet the Bible is clear that every single one of us is a sinner. I got a little illustration to use to show you what I mean. Because a lot of you just don't see yourself the way the Bible sees you, and I want you to make sure, because you'll never appreciate or understand the good news if you don't know the bad news. This uh, goblet, this glass, represents your body. What's inside is water. That represents your soul and your spirit. You're a body, a soul, and a spirit. Now, you look at it, and that water looks pretty clear, doesn't it? Now, I don't know what all the treatments they, you know, they did at the plant to get it that way. It looks pretty clear, right? Looks like water that's pretty clear. Well, I've got here something else. I've got uh, this is a little bottle of poison. Mary keeps it around the house. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that occasionally it's not in my food. I've got a little, little bottle of poison here. You see, it's in a dark box, a little bottle of poison. I want you to see something. Uh, I want you to see something. I'm pouring the poison into this water. Now, let me just ask you a question to close this back up. Let me ask you a question. I invite anybody in the room, anybody, come take a drink of the water. Anybody here? Anybody here? Come take a drink of the water with the poison. 
Do you know what happened when I put the poison inside that bottle or inside this uh, water? It poisoned every aspect of the water. And while this is a hard glass, unlike your physical body, it, this, this goblet is now contaminated by the poison that I poured inside of it. Now, the fact of the matter is, does it look that much different? It looks pretty clear. It looks pretty much like it looked before I poured the poison in, right? But the fact of the matter is, you and I know we don't want to drink out of that glass. Why? Because it's been, what's the word? It's been poisoned. Now, we can look around and we can look at ourselves and we can say, hey, you know what? I, I'm pretty clear. I, I mean, my life is pretty good. It's pretty good. But the fact of the matter is, at the very core of who we are, the Bible tells us that every one of us have been poisoned. Every one of us have been poisoned. Listen to how it says it. Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered into the world in death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Let me ask you a question. How many of you went to a, to a funeral last year? How many of you went to a funeral last year? Do you know that death is the evidence of sin? I don't mean that that person died because they committed some particular sin. I mean they died because we live in a sin-cursed world and every one of us are sinful beings. For the wages of sin is, what's the word? It's death. It's interesting. You open up the, the Old Testament and you read about the Garden of Eden and the perfection that God had pr provided. And, and then Adam partakes of the forbidden fruit and man is plunged under sin. And then when you get to some of those early... Uh, some of those early uh, chronologies of people's lives, uh, those ancestries of people's lives, it says, and they died, 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 and they died. You know why it tells you that? Because in the Garden of Eden, before sin, man was sinful. Man lived in fellowship with God, but when man partook of the forbidden fruit, he plunged all of mankind under sin. And every one of us from Adam forward has inherited that same sin nature. Think about what the scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. I mean, you may look clean and clear and righteous, but the fact of the matter is that what the prophet said, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Every one of us at the core of our being are sinful. We may not be utterly sinful or utterly depraved, meaning that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but we are totally depraved in that every aspect of us has been touched by sin. Been touched by sin. Think about it, Romans chapter 3, verse, verse 23. For all have, what's the word? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All the perfect people in the room, if you would, please stand with me. <laughs> well, I'm not standing, actually. Inside, I'm sitting. So all of the perfect people in the room stand without me, would you? The fact of the matter is, we all know that we're sinful people. You know, our conscience is there, isn't it? Unfortunately, the conscience is only good as the programming if it's wrongly programmed, your conscience won't function properly. But if your conscience is functioning in any, in any fashion of, a, of, of the way it's supposed to function, you know there's something wrong. There's something missing. 
There's an absence. There's a darkness in your life. There's a poison within you. There's something going on in your life that you wish were not there. Uh, Paul describes this in his own, his own, uh, his own experience of life. Listen to how he, he, he writes it. It's in Romans chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. You can read it later on. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it is no longer I who do it, now listen, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I'm grateful that the Bible doesn't leave us wondering Paul goes on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But before you can understand the good news of the gospel, you've got to come face to face with the bad news that is not ignored whenever you're sharing the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Christ died for our sins. You think, well, I'm not really all that bad, preacher. I don't believe what the Apostle Paul said and all those verses you quoted a little while ago. Well, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and the list can go on. Where does it come from? Well, it was all forced on me, Pastor. No, no, no. You may have been tempted by outside sources, but the lust that was in you is what was tempted. What was already within you, that sin nature within you, is what was already, what was already uh, present within you that was tempted. Uh, Tim Keller is one of the uh, popular writers today. And Tim Keller writes about the gospel this way. Here's the gospel, he says. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. Then he goes on, you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Dear friends, that's the reality of life. Every single one of us is sinful. Let me ask you a question. Did you have to teach your children to sass you? Did you have to teach your children growing up? I mean, these pure, innocent little ones who got to an age where they could begin to speak back and forth. Did you ever have to to get them and teach them how to say and do the things that are rebellious? 
As a matter of fact, sometimes don't you just back up and say, is this my child? Did an alien come and inhabit my child? I mean, who is this child? Where did he come from? Where did she come from? I mean, the reality is we are born this way with sin. Now, that's a problem. Because we're sinners, that means that we can't have a relationship or fellowship with God in our present condition. That we are, in fact, cut off from God. As Adam and Eve were cut off from God after they partook of the forbidden fruit, because we are all born with that same nature, that propensity toward evil, that lust within us that's tempted by the things that are around us, the reality is we can't have fellowship with God any more than Adam and Eve could have fellowship with God after they had sinned. So that brings me to a second statement. If the gospel acknowledges mankind's sinful condition, we have to say, secondly, that the gospel also announces God's loving provision. The gospel announces God's loving provision. I'd have you go back to chapter 15, 1 Corinthians Verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, not just in chronology, but in priority, this is the most important message, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. The bad news is we're sinners. The good news is that Jesus has come to pay the penalty for us. Jesus has come to do for us what we could not do ourselves. I take you back to that quote from Tim Keller. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. But do you remember the second part? You're more loved than you ever dared hope. Now, I, I don't know about you. I'm, I want you to think about this with me for a moment. I'm sort of made out of the same stuff as you are. And when somebody is mean toward me or toward my family or somebody uh, speaks against their character or says something that they shouldn't say or does something that they shouldn't do, I, I go into uh, attack mode. You do that? I go into attack mode. I mean, I, I try to be controlled by the Spirit, but I'm talking about within me, there is this desire, okay, I'm going to cut you off at the knees. I'm, I'm going to show you a thing or two. And then, you know, after that's happened, somebody has expressed those kinds of feelings toward me, uh, toward some of my family. The next thing is, you know, I don't want to be around you. I don't, I don't really want to be, be with you. I mean, I, I want to surround my people, my life with people that are loving, that are compassionate, that are kind, that are Christ-like. I don't really want to be around people that are involved in character assassination, right? Oh, come on now. You're exactly the same way. You're exactly the same way. Why don't you think about this? Us, utterly sinful, us totally depraved us who are sinners who are poisoned we may look good but the fact of the matter is every one of us is poisoned by sin we shook our fist in the face of god we thumbed our nose at him we rebelled against him we walked away from him we said we don't want you in our lives and yet that god didn't stop pursuing us I don't know if that baffles you, that God would love even those that the Bible says were his enemies. And that's exactly what the gospel says. The gospel says that Christ died for our sins. 
our sins that make us the enemies of God, that separate us from God, that cut us off from a relationship and fellowship with God. Christ died for those sins. That's incredible love. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners. You understand what that means? Those that have thumbed their nose at God, those that have shaken their fist at God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or how about the verse of Scripture that just about everybody can quote if they've been in church any length of time? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God, how do you do that? I have trouble loving people who treat me wrongly. Lord, how do you love people that treat you wrongly? And yet the Bible says it over and over because when you talk about the gospel, you're more sinful than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Now I want you to think about this love for a moment. This love involves a person that is unprecedented. What's his name? Chapter 3, chapter 15, verse 3. Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. A person that is unprecedented. Nobody has ever been like Jesus. Nobody ever born like Jesus was born. Nobody ever lived like Jesus lived. This love not only involves a person that is unprecedented, it involves a payment that is unrivaled. He died for our sins. He paid a price that you and I could never pay on our own, and he didn't just pay it for one or two of us. He paid it for all of us. This love is not only about a person that's unprecedented and a payment that's unrivaled. It's about a power that is unmatched. Listen to what goes on to say. Verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and, here's the power, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And by the way, if you want to authenticate that, will you just look, he goes on, we just look as he goes on, verse 5, he was seen. Verse 6, he was seen. Verse 7, he was seen. Verse 8, he was seen. And he lists the number of people. We saw him. This is no figment of our imagination. This is no concocted story. We saw him. This love, this loving provision that the gospel announces is about a person that's unprecedented and a payment that's unrivaled, a power that's unmatched. And can I just teach you a little bit of Greek here? I'm not a Greek scholar. I know enough Greek most of the time to get me in trouble. But I, I just teach you a little bit of Greek. The two verbs died and buried in verses 3 and 4, the aorist tense. You know what that means? It means that's a simple historical past. He's not going to keep dying and he's not going to keep being buried. It's a simple historical past, an event in the past. But guess what? When it says that he rose again, those two words, rose again, a single uh, Greek word, it's in the present tense. He died once, he was buried once, but he rose again and goes on living and goes on living and goes on living and will never die and never be buried again and never have to rise again. 
I don't know if you understand that power or not, but I want you to understand that is the incredible power of the gospel. You see, talking about your pastor, talking about your church, talking about your life group, talking about some other good Christian is a good thing to do on occasion, but do you know what people need to hear? People need to hear the gospel. They need to be told that Christ died for your sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He rose again according to the Scripture, that He was seen, that He was seen, that He was seen, that He was seen. They need to hear that message over and over and over again. I don't like to read a whole lot from the pulpit, but I'm going to read you something from Dr. Merrill C. Tenney. Dr. Tenney died at the end of the last century, back in the 1980s. That seems like forever ago, doesn't it? Seems like forever ago, doesn't it? In the 1980s, one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite theologians, Ph.D. from Harvard, Harvard, Ph.D. from Harvard, and he writes in a way about this little phrase, Christ died for our sins and rose again in a way that I can't say it. So I want to read you four paragraphs. So you're going to have to stay with me. Are you, are you plugged in here? Are you, are you listening? Dr. Tenney writes, sin is man's central problem. His disobedience has cut him off from the fellowship of God because God cannot tolerate evil in his presence. His very nature is contrary to it. Unless some way is found of removing this obstacle, man will be sundered from God forever. Since his life, his very life, depends upon contact with God, that is man's, life depends upon contact with God, separation from God will mean the frustration of all his efforts and the dilution of existence into utter meaningless, meaninglessness. He goes on. Reconciliation to God must be made on some basis which will remove the old guilt and which will open the door once again to fellowship. Who can take the initiative? Here, he says, is a paradoxical situation. Nobody can represent man adequately who is not human, and who cannot speak as one of our race. On the other hand, who of our race is adequate to stand before God as our representative? If all are tainted by sin, no one of us would be acceptable before him. He continues, furthermore, how can God reveal himself satisfactorily to men? Through what medium can he make plain his love and his judgment, his removal of sin and his program for those whom he saves? How can he speak to man with the voice of deity in the language of humanity? If he wrote his message in the sky, man would not have the knowledge to comprehend it. If he spoke by an audible voice, it would be misunderstood. If he used only some supernatural sign, it would be discounted by unbelief. How could the paradox of atonement and the paradox of revelation be solved at the same time? One last paragraph. God has found a way to resolve these difficulties. Christ died for our sins. In him, in Christ, deity and humanity united perfectly. His perfection provided a representative acceptable to God and adequate for men. His voluntary assumption of suffering with us and for us and His participation in our alienation from God atoned for our sin. From the divine standpoint, His action revealed the love and justice of God. Love in the sacrifice, justice in the penalty of death that He endured for us. 
No theology, he says, however profound, can plumb the depths of this complex relationship, yet the simple statement of the text provides the answer. Christ died for our sins. My friends, when we're talking about the gospel, we have to understand that no matter how clean we may think we are or how clean we may look to other people, the fact of the matter is every one of us is poisoned by sin. But God, who is loving, sent his only son to pay the penalty for us. Matter of fact, I'd have you to do something. In that little phrase, in verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Circle the word for. Circle the word for. And out in the margin of your Bible, put the words on account of or in order to deal with. Christ died on account of or in order to deal with our sins. That's an incredible love. Would you agree? That's an incredible love that God has given to us. And that's the love that the Apostle Paul came preaching. By the way, I said this gospel needs to be announced. This good news needs to be announced. How did Paul bring the message to the Corinthians? He didn't come bringing it in debate. He didn't come bringing it in dialogue. Listen listen to what it says, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I, what? Which I preached, verse 2. By which also you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I, what did he do? He preached, verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we, what? Preach. And so you believed. This is an announcement. You are a sinner. You are under the judgment of God. You will be separated from him forever because of your own sin. But God, who is a loving God, has made a loving provision. And that loving provision is in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we announce that to people over and over and over again. Just one other thought about that. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities. The first is a virgin's womb, and the second is an empty tomb. And therein you find the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen. It's not some moralism. It's not some ceremonialism. It's not some ritualism. It's Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, and he rose again according to the Scriptures, and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen. It's a historical reality. A historical reality. That brings me to say, thirdly and finally, The gospel acknowledges mankind's sinful condition. The gospel announces God's loving provision, but the gospel accentuates salvation's soul condition. The gospel accentuates salvation's soul condition. I want you to look back at verse 11. Chapter 15, verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, so we preach, and so you, what's the next word? You believed. You believed. You say, okay, preacher, I, I'm willing to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. 
I, I recognize that in me are some things that I don't wish were in me. I think some things, and I feel some things, and I say some things, and I do some things, and I go some ways that I know just aren't the right things to do. Whenever I do them, I feel guilty. I feel wrong about it. I know there's something wrong within me. But preacher, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He was buried, that he rose again, and that he was seen, and that he lives today. And because he lives today, he can offer to me eternal life. But how do I receive that life? How do I receive that life? We receive that life by trusting in Jesus and trusting in Jesus alone. You say, but what does it mean to trust? Well, those of you that are in life groups, and let me stop here and say, if you're not in a life group, let me encourage you. This is a great time of year to get involved in a life group. Because in our life groups, at least a portion of the life group, we're going to be talking about the gospel, talking about the importance and the centrality of the gospel, defending the gospel, and so forth. But a supplementary tool that we've provided to all of our life group leaders, and we may have a few extra copies that you can purchase out here in the Welcome Center. But in this little book written by Charles Ryrie, he says something really important. How many of you have ever had a Ryrie study Bible? Dr. Ryrie's in heaven now, one of the most uh, brilliant men that I have ever been able to be acquainted with or to know about. But in this book called So Great Salvation, uh, Dr. Ryrie writes, does the New Testament use other words interchangeably with believe? Yes, it does. Now, he's going to give scripture references that I'm not going to give. Receive is one. Call is another. Confess is one. Ask is another. Come is one. Take is another. The person who asks or confesses or calls or receives or comes or takes, believes. We might use a synonym for believe. You need to receive Christ. You need to call on Christ. You need to accept Christ. We may use synonyms, but ultimately what we mean is you have to put your faith. Lord, the only hope I have it's not in the waters of a baptistry, as important as it is that believers in Jesus be baptized. It's not in the church. It's not in a pastor. It's not in a pope. It's not in a confessional. It's not in a ritual. The only hope I have, my entire eternal destiny, rests in Jesus. The forgiveness of my sins, the hope of eternal life, the promise of heaven rests on one person, not what I do, not whether I can clean up my life, which you cannot. Not whether I can clean up my life. It rests completely and wholly on Jesus. He is my only hope. As you think about that, let me finish by saying three things. If you believe it, that is, believe this gospel... That Christ died for your sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that he was seen, that he was seen, that he was seen, that he was seen. If you know that you're a sinner and the only hope is the good news of what Jesus has done for you, number one, you have to believe it and you'll be saved. You believe it and you'll be saved. You're not saved by sincerity. You're not saved by sentiment. You're not saved by service. You're not saved by sacrament. You're saved by believing the gospel. What are you resting your faith in today? Well, I've been a pretty good person. That won't get you to heaven. I come and go through the order of service with everybody else, the routines and the rituals. That won't get you to heaven. 
I'm friends with the pastor. That definitely won't get you to heaven. That definitely won't get you to heaven. You have to believe Jesus Christ. Believe it and you'll be saved. Secondly, believe it and you'll be secured. Hey, it's good news to know that you can be saved. It's better news to know you can be saved and know it. And it's incredible news to know once you're saved, you can never lose it. Look at it. It's right here. This is the gospel I'm preaching to you. Back up into verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. There's the first one. The gospel I preach to you, which you also received. They accepted what he said, which also, which also you received. And thirdly, in which you stand, in which you stand, there's the security. You stand in this gospel. You are kept by this gospel by which also you were saved by which also you are saved. We believe it and we're saved. We believe it and we're secured. Do you realize that my salvation isn't dependent about whether I can hold on to Jesus long enough till I get to heaven? It's about Jesus holding on to me till I get to heaven. And nobody can pluck me out of his hand. But then you have to believe it, and when you believe it, you'll be strengthened. A lot of people don't understand, verse 2, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. They say, oh, there it is. There it is. These people, they thought they were saved, but they were really never saved. That's not what he's saying. He called them brethren. He said they stood in the gospel. But do you understand when we talk about being saved, there's three tenses to being saved. There's a past tense. God forgives my sins, past tense. There's a future tense. He's going to save me. He saves me from the from the penalty of my sins, past tense. He's going to save me one day from the presence of sin. <clears throat> but do you understand what he's saying here? You're saved in the present tense. That's future tense. That's past tense. This is present tense. Future tense, saved from the presence of sin. Past tense, saved from the penalty of sin. But the present tense, he's saving me every single day from the power of sin unless you abandon the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? The gospel is not only the means by which you were saved, the gospel is the means by which you have the power to become Christ-like in your life. You say, well, surely when we receive the gospel, we can move on. You never want to move past the gospel. You never want to move past the gospel. Oswald Chambers is a name that probably many of you know, a famous writer. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not consist only in the forgiveness of sins, nor does the gospel end with the fact that God loved you with unmerited mercy and forgives you of your sins. That is but only the beginning of it. The full gospel of Christ is that he enables, equips, and empowers you to live and work and breathe and move in this natural body with the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's by the gospel that we're saved. It's by the gospel that we're being saved every single day. It's by the gospel. You understand why I think this is so important? We can't be confused about this, friends. We're not preaching a message to people about our church or about our pastor or pastoral staff or about our neighbors or our, our, our good neighbors in the body. We're not talking about preaching a message about the many activities and functions that we have. The message that the world needs to have announced to them is the gospel. 
You are desperately a sinner, but the good news is Jesus has died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. He was seen by many who know he's alive. And if you'll trust him, faith in faith alone, in Christ alone, you can be a child of the living God. And your sin penalty can be paid in full. That's pretty good news, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you don't understand the bad news, you don't appreciate the good news. But when you understand the bad news, you understand how great the good news really is. Edwin Rushworth is a man that nobody here will know. But his entire life, he spent it as a skeptic. He didn't believe the Bible. He thought the church was wasting its time. He had all kinds of arguments and excuses for everything you could imagine. But as a New Year's resolution one year, he decided that he would read this book that he hated so desperately. He would read it for an hour a day. He said to his wife after a day of reading, if this book is right, then we're all wrong. He continued to read another week. And after a week, he said to his wife, if this book is right then we're all lost. He kept reading for another week, and finally he said to his wife, if this book is right, then we can be saved. Can I tell you, if this book is right, I've got great news for you. Here's the great news. While you are a sinner, just as the Bible says you are a sinner, God, in his great love, has sent his son, the only perfect one, the sinless son of God, to live amongst us. He died to pay the penalty for, on behalf of, in the place of, ourselves, our sin. He was buried, but he was raised that third day. And he lives and will never die again. He lives to offer his forgiveness what he purchased at Calvary. He lives to offer it to anyone who will receive it, who will ask for it, who will believe him, who will trust him. That's the gospel. How did you get saved? Well, I went down in front of the church and I signed a sheet and I said I wanted to be a member of the church and they took me back and they baptized me and uh, maybe it was immersion as we do, maybe it was sprinkling. Or I went in a little booth at a church somewhere and I pulled a little sliding door and I confessed my sins and the priest says he absolved me of my sins and they're, they're all gone that way. And I go now on a regular basis to make sure that I just keep it all clean because, you know, I just got to be good enough to get there. Do you realize how miserable that kind of a life is? And can I tell you the good news? If you'll open your heart to Jesus Christ today in receiving you walk out of this room forgiven forever. With the gift of eternal life, with the promise of a home in heaven, your pardon has been made possible by the death of Jesus, and every day he'll be at work in you, making you more like his son, all by the gospel.